what is a DAO? If you come from the law, a DAO is kind of legal framework. Uh, if you come from economics, a DAO is an institution, it's an organization. If you come from cybernetics, a DAO is this multi agent system that is optimizing or uh, trying to uh, reach, I guess, towards a stated objective. Uh, but if you come from ethnography, a social science like me, it's really a community of people that are working towards a shared goal. This is season two of Voices of the Data Economy, a podcast supported by Ocean Protocol Foundation. We bring to you the voices shaping the data economy and challenging it at the same time. Listen to founders, tech policy experts, and pioneers in impact investing, all sharing their relationship with data. So hello and welcome to a new episode of Voices of the Data Economy. Today we have Kelsey Nabin with us. She is a researcher in decentralized uh, technology communities. She's interested in the human outcomes of digital infrastructure, blockchain community culture, and algorithm governance. She has written various papers on this topic, um, and the recent one being decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, as we all know. Uh, so, so she's written about how DAOs can be used as data trusts, and we will talk about it also in detail. But before that, hello, Kelsey. Hi, Diksha. Glad, glad to be here. So, uh, well, thank you for taking our time. It's end of the day for you um, and morning for us here in Berlin. So before we really start, uh, you know, you're, you're a researcher, you're on the academic side, and I'm really curious to know what got you interested in DAOs and decentralized technologies. Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually come at the space from quite a varied background, I guess. So I worked in government and then in technology startups. And that's where I first learned about blockchain technology and very quickly found it really intellectually engaging. Uh, shifted into that space, moved overseas and worked for Amise Go, one of the early DEX projects, and got to travel a lot and meet a lot of the, the community, I guess, especially around the Ethereum ecosystem. And then taking a step back, I came back to Australia and had always wanted to do a PhD and, and everything just aligned uh, for that to happen. So my PhD is on resilience in decentralized technologies, but I'm a social scientist. So I'm really interested in investigating the social aspects of these infrastructures as both social and technical technologies. You know, whenever I think of DAOs, I mean, I heard a lot of talks by you. And, and whenever I think of DAOs, the word algorithm doesn't really strike me because for me, it's like a very web to um, web to word, you know, that we talk about algorithms. And we also had like Safia Nobel come here and talk about how search engines are really using our data against us through algorithms, etc. So it, it was a very refreshing perspective. Uh, where you say that algorithms in DAOs are used for different aspects and management, even for reputation management. So, so tell us a bit about how are algorithms used in DAOs and, and uh, give us some examples there. 
Fantastic question. I think I see algorithms almost from the kind of academic field. Um, I'm part of a center for automated decision-making in society, which is really looking at, you know, where are algorithms operating, especially in non-transparent ways in Web2, and what social outcomes does that have? And I think the advantage of looking at Web3 or, or, you know, peer-to-peer, open source, decentralized, encrypted technologies is uh, actually the efforts to make the rules of governance or the algorithms that are involved in governance processes semi-transparent. So open source uh, software in the decentralized technology space, such as public blockchains, means that anyone can go and read the smart contracts that have, uh, you know, rules encoded in them, that kind of Turing complete, you know, if then. So if this happens, then that happens. Uh, But, of course, we're not all literate in that. So not everyone is a software coder. I'm certainly not, although I've um, tried my hand at a bit of Python. Uh, But really, these are algorithmic systems. And uh, more broadly, there's a narrative going on in the governance of these systems around governance automation, uh, which I find really fascinating because, as you pointed out, algorithms can work both for us, as in is the intention to augment human capabilities in governance, in coordination, in organisation, or is it to control? Is it to monetize? Is it to exploit, which is a lot of the kind of academic discourse around what has happened in previous digital platforms, you know, that have sort of intermediaries. So I guess that's the perspective that I I come from it too. And I'd really encourage people as well uh, to look at a piece that I actually co-authored with Michael Zagam, the CTO and founder of Block Science, which is around algorithms as policy. So what we talk about is that as you have digital economies, as more and more interactions are mediated by digital technology, writing code is synonymous with making policies, with setting rules of governance. And so that's why it's so important to actually, uh, you know, especially the role of engineers in these systems to do so uh, considerably and responsibly. And, and what are the kind of examples where you think algorithms can, can, could be used to um, manage a DAO? Yeah, so I actually have an ethnography which is published um, open source on SSRN, which is like a working paper publication site, uh, which uh, is a deep dive into the algorithmic process in Gitcoin as they transition to a DAO around the anti-Sybil functions. So civil attacks is where people pretend, you know, they create multiple fake identities and then they game the system. And Gitcoin is essentially trying to provide grants. And there's an algorithm that governs that grants process called quadratic funding. So what happens is it's not just about how much you donate, but how many people donate. And that's a signal of stronger support for the project. And then a mathematical equation determines more of a pool of matching funds, depends on depending on not just how much people donate, but how many people donate. So to have more identities, even if they're fake, is obviously of great advantage to, to gain that system and get more of the matched funds. 
So what I look at there is how people are doing cyber attacks, so using bots to create fake identities, while um, Gitcoin DAO, which is a combination of the founding team and a bunch of volunteers and um, some contracting organizations that have come on to help support that process, um, are trying to defend against the Sybil attacks using algorithms as well. So the DAO is trying to set up its governance to govern this machine learning pipeline and the machine learning pipeline working group is trying to uh, detect Sybil attacks. So they're trying to flag, you know, this grant looks fake or these donations look fake or they're happening in certain patterns or from certain locations or certain addresses that um, create a flag. And so what does it mean for the people in the DAO and the algorithms that are detecting, you know, potential civil behavior to actually create a whole process and a whole set of policies around how we want that anti-civil system to be governed. Uh, so super fascinating stuff and really, really cutting edge um, in terms of um, the scales at which um, organizational governance are being innovated on and also the uh, sort of interlinked nature of people and you know machines or people and algorithms in these processes of governance in what is um, both a threat to the DAO and the DAO's success but then also what is a kind of defense and a strengthening of the DAO. Yeah I, I guess there are always two sides and um, we can only hope that it's used on the right side. So um, now coming a bit to your to your paper, you know, and um, it talks about DAOs as, as data trusts. And we've spoken about data trusts in the past, uh, in, in this podcast as well, with Anuk, Roha, um, Anuk Ruhak from Mozilla, and I see you also cited her in your paper. But you go to an, another level of, you know, a deep dive into data trust. So probably we can divide this into two parts that what actually um, are data trusts, and then what is their connection to DAOs. So if you have to explain, um, like, what is a data trust, how would you go about it? Yeah, so this hopefully is an, uh, is an explanation that connects with anyone listening, because I am not a lawyer, I'm an ethnographer, which is um, we can talk about later as a, a research method. Um, but from my understanding and from the lovely people in the acknowledgements of the paper that have given me feedback on it, uh, trusts are a legal structure that has existed for a long, long time and they're an important innovation in property rights law. And they're about separating the legal ownership and control of property from its equitable ownership and benefits. So a relatively new concept is a data trust, which specifically applies the property structure of a trust to data as the, um, the asset, I guess, or the resource. And so data trusts are predicated on participatory democracy and democratic, sorry, and cooperative governance structures, whereby uh, a person or an entity is appointed to act as an independent fiduciary and steward of that data on behalf of the beneficiaries. 
So really the aim of a data trust is to return power to individuals regarding the use of their data through kind of collective pooling and then appointment and stewardship of that data. And so what this allows in the kind of digital economy, if you're thinking about monetization, although it's not only about monetization, you can have donations and research and other things, is how do you aggregate data and then unlock its value in a fair way in line with the preferences of beneficiaries? Mm -hmm. And so what does like a legal structure look like for, for a data trust? So I uh, heavily reference a wonderful paper um, in this, uh, which is around, it's called Bottom-Up Data Trust, and it's by um, De La Rue and Lawrence. And so they are lawyers and, and pioneers of the field of data trusts. And so I highly recommend that people refer to that for kind of the details. And um, in the paper I have, I do have some references with some kind of structures but really it's about appointing that third party to steward data in line with your preferences. And I guess the key thing that I point out is that a drawback of data trusts as a legal structure is that there's not actually strong guarantees about enforceability. So when you rely on the law, you know, say that you entrust your data to me, if I then go and sell it to third parties that you didn't authorize or it gets hacked or it gets duplicated, um, I'm really sorry. You can sue me and perhaps, you know, get some money or whatever, but that data is, you know, gone or replicated or shared or mined forever. And so that is why I connected this concept to DAOs because I was like, well, you know, code, code is law in the DAO sort of ethos and the blockchain ethos. So what does it mean to actually have enforceability around how data is governed through, you know, smart contracts and DAO governance rather than relying on traditional nation state legal systems for that? Hmm. Oh, wow. That's an interesting point. And I think uh, about basically we don't knowing, uh, we not knowing that what happens to our data, you know, if it's sold to a third party, and I think similar thing was also discussed, uh, can be said for data unions as well, right? So you really don't know what happens uh, to it. So, uh, so do you think that um, if they are used as DAOs, I mean, you already uh, mentioned it a bit, this, this drawback, can we can overcome this drawback? And if yes, how can you explain that a little more? Like, Yeah, so... I mean, that's, that's a very interesting question. I, I guess this paper is still in the theory and kind of what I'm trying to do is propose structures. So DAOs are these very nascent institutional forms and there's not even a clear definition of what they are. I actually have a, a working piece, which I hope to get out just on my blog or somewhere for people to read very soon in terms of like, what is a DAO? And I run through different, disciplines. I just look at different ontological approaches. So if you come from the law, a DAO is kind of, um, you know, this like legal framework. Uh, if you come from economics, a DAO is an institution. It's an organization. People have done organization for years. Um, if you come from cybernetics, a DAO is this multi-agent system that is optimizing or, or you know, um, uh, trying to 
uh, reach, I guess, towards a stated objective. Uh, but if you come from ethnography or social science like me, it's really a community of people that are working towards a shared goal. So can DAOs uh, provide a you know, viable and constructive uh, data governance framework for people? I think we're just on the precipice of that being tested. And so in the paper, I actually list, um, you know, a bunch of projects that are sort of foraying into this space. And um, I've actually been fortunate enough since uh, sharing the paper to connect with, with a lot of them. Uh, so, you know, Streamer is an example that, um, of a project playing in the data space. Obviously, Ocean Protocol around data markets. Um, Filecoin decentralized data storage has just announced their virtual machine, which will enable a whole lot more programmability on top of storage, including, you know, opportunities to monetize that data. Um, but it's really uh, an open field in terms of how people are going to use these composable modules, how they're going to combine DAOs with some of the you know, storage or streams of data or data marketplaces, and I think they can play together uh, to try to to create opportunities for data for data to work for people. And then, of course, there's people on the other or projects on the other um, end of that spectrum, um, such as Wildland that comes out of Gollum that believe like data should just never be monetized like privacy is privacy and, and that's that like don't share it don't monetize it don't donate it um whatever but that's uh, maybe a hard uh stretch from from where we are in terms of the digital economy and and what's your personal view like on on data storage data monetization and and data economy in general and and where the path of all these projects is going Oh, I guess uh, I try to strike a balance in my work. I don't want to be um, technological determin deterministic, I guess. Um, I don't want to pretend that all this is inevitable. Uh, but much of my writing, you know, I really want to get on the inside of communities and speak to people and observe what's happening and then provide a constructive reflection. So, you know, um, there's sort of a critical critical studies, which is like, oh, they said they were decentralized and they're not or whatever, which, you know, maybe isn't as helpful as saying like these people are trying to achieve this. They're trying to achieve decentralization. They're trying to achieve self-governance. They're trying to achieve new forms of, of markets or um, sort of, uh, you know, collective uh, individualism or um, you know, infrastructural mutualism, as Lana Schwartz calls it in 2017 or something when she looked at blockchains. Uh, but here's some warnings or here's some reflections or here's, you know, maybe something to help you on your journey. So I do, to that point, actually have a piece that's been published um, in ACM called um, Is a Dower Panopticon? And I talk about some of the history and origins of, um, you know, the cypherpunks as a community and a subculture and this kind of countercultural narrative of wanting, um, you know, individual kind of liberty and freedom through privacy and encryption technology. And, you know, DAOs, as I've mentioned, as, as algorithmic um, 
governance structures are also really effective at monitoring things, as is any digital technology, um, monitoring behaviours, monitoring actions, influencing them and all these things. So um, in pieces like that, I try to say, like, hey, here's where you've come from. Try not to, um, you know, to turn on your roots if these are the values that you really care about. Um, yeah, so I don't think I'm in a place to say uh, Dow's Australia Trust will or won't provide good outcomes for people, uh, but I think providing a framework or a lens of uh, existing um, models, so data trusts are an existing model. You don't have to reinvent the wheel if you want to govern data, just apply decentralized governance principles to existing models and see if it's possible. And you also speak about the use cases of uh, data trust DAOs. Could you give some examples of that uh, from your paper? Yeah. So I think uh, in terms of uh, DAOs as data trusts as an infrastructure, one of the most interesting components will be around that arbitration and enforcement mechanism. So I mentioned earlier. If you don't need to rely on the law, but you're relying on the code-based system, what does that actually look like? And so I think decentralised courts are still in their early days in some senses, and it's fascinating to see communities either implement them or develop their own. I've done um, an ethnography on... Uh, one hive in a, in a paper on imaginaries in, in the decentralized technology space. Um, and they have Celeste, which is like their own um, decentralized court mechanism. And it involves, you know, kind of peer to peer accountability. So I can challenge your action or whatever in terms of how you've spent funds or what you've built or what you haven't built. But then I have to stake value against that challenge. And then we engage in this process, which is like, you know, high risk, high reward in terms of like, I have to be serious about it if I'm going to, you know, put value against that. And then so do you in terms of defending your position. So that's a really important step towards use cases, I guess. And then what I go on to explore in the paper around implementing data DAOs really looks at uh, the combination of concepts. So. Uh, the main idea around this is kind of like the DeFi for data. So what does it look like to take what has happened in the decentralized finance space around, you know, how do you wrap data? How do you um, earn yield off data? How do you farm data? How do you stake data? All of these things. And so using, you know, some of those projects that are out there that I mentioned in terms of like there's, you know, there's streams, there's markets, there's storage. Um, you know, what are the combinations of activities that people could conduct to then um, put it to use? And use is not only monetization, as I mentioned, but maybe it's, um, oh, I got my genome data because I thought it would be interesting. Uh, and now I want to donate that to anti-cancer research or whatever. So it's kind of like you could also do data for good off these kind of models as well, but have it done kind of privately. So my eyes are very much on those virtual machine capabilities on Filecoin, 
Um, and I also, you know, pay mention in, in this work to um, the idea of computer data. So Ocean Protocol has this innovation in, around, you know, instead of just spreading the data everywhere, what does it look like to kind of have a secure enclave, have like, you know, verifiability through encryption, um, you know, bring an algorithm, let it mine a bunch of data. And then, you know, at the end of the day, like, that data hasn't gone anywhere. It hasn't been copied. Uh, and the algorithm has learned what it's learned through its processes. But, um, you know, hopefully it's a step forward towards kind of much more accountable digital systems. Yeah, yeah. Very beautifully explained. So that's the positive side. Now, what do you feel is the biggest challenge of DAOs or Probably let me put it this way. Why could DAOs fail? Why could DAOs survive? And if they're hoping, we all are hoping they do, uh, which type of, of DAOs th- could this be? Yeah, that is a fascinating question. Potentially uh, the, the billion-dollar question. Um, I mean, really, this is what I'm exploring more broadly in my PhD around this idea of resilience. Uh, And I define resilience according to the literature on on socio-technical systems. So I'm looking at um, adaptability and transformability against kind of uh, perturbations or crisis. But I want to see systems where communities of people are able to adapt as well as the the technological infrastructure. And so DAOs are such a nascent and experimental form of governance. Um, As I pointed out, you know, it's not even clearly defined. And um, the term DAO actually originated in the field of cybernetics in 1997 by a fellow German computer scientist called Werner Dilger, who stated... uh, that a decentralized autonomous organization is actually a smart home system. So he was just talking about, you know, what does it ha- what does it mean to have, you know, uh, you know, a goal, so like a thermostat or whatever in your home, and then have the system, you know, reaching towards that goal, um, and then somehow that was ported across, you know, according from the, to the historical research, you know, that I have done. Um, and Vitalik Buterin sort of started talking about it in Bitcoin magazine and then it was in the Ethereum white paper and then there's that great post on DAOs, DAOs, DAX and more, which, you know, is kind of like DAOs have, you know, AI that, you know, governs them for us and all these things um, that are very futuristic and kind of science fiction. Uh, So what could go wrong, I guess, like what couldn't go wrong? Uh, I still see these in the conceptual phase in some senses, um, as in I've tried to do work around the history and around the potential futures of these governance structures to help people orient themselves towards goals or aspirations for these um, and sort of reflect on on those. Uh, And then 
in the other sense, it's like, what are we waiting for? You know, Constitution Dow's raising, you know, millions to try and buy the US Constitution. And, you know, as we've seen recently, you know, Ukraine Dow is raising very real money to fund, you know, um, support, you know, in the crisis um, in, in Ukraine. And, and it's just fascinating to see this kind of community organisation in action and able to, uh, call, you know, summon and uh, direct resources like we haven't seen in other kind of cooperative models really in the past. I guess like crowdfunding was like kind of a thing, um, but not like this. So I think there is a great responsibility and again, I, I'm uh, just doing my little tiny part and, and hopefully people see it or hear it or read it in terms of like history, futures, and then porting across those existing models. So, oh, what are data trusts doing in the legal sense? What does that mean in a DAO or a decentralized sense? Um, I do the same for cooperatives in a co-authored piece on cooperative principles and DAOs uh, where I emphasize hey, like the fundamental principle of co-ops, which are this governance, you know, collective community governance structure of hundreds of years, is that the people that labour in the co-op are the people that own it and govern it. And yet some of the earliest and biggest DAOs, and credit to them for pioneering, like I mean this in the most constructive uh, and respectful way possible, but you know, without meaning to, like trying for sort of more democratic and fair systems, um, created classist structures where there's like this governance layer of people that made a lot of money in retroactive airdrops where they had participated in the past and were then allocated governance tokens. And then there's volunteers who, you know, hope to get some tokens at some point, but it's really vague, uh, who you know, are really labouring for free and, and, you know, it's called quote-unquote liquid democracy, but they're, you know, working for nothing and that right can be taken away at any time. So, um, yeah, I guess that's a lengthy answer to, you know, what what can we learn from the ways that people have tried to organise themselves for, you know, a long time and all the expertise um, in those fields uh, when trying to do governance in a decentralised manner? Because you don't have to start from scratch. Um, there's innovations, but then there's also um, foundations from other fields to draw on, which I think are important. Mm-hmm. Okay, you you said a very interesting point, actually. And I think some of that, uh, so you said, you know, earlier there were DAOs which had like a section of people becoming rich with the governance and everything. And somehow, sometimes, you know, I, I feel a similar sentiment when you say volunteers are not paid and, and they are active. So um, just want to go into flashback a little bit that you started researching, say, a year back on, on DAOs, and it's now been a year. Um, so what, have you seen a difference in, in this um, from then to now? Do you see it's becoming more and more decentralized. I mean, uh, we had actually a guest saying in the last episode that uh, we have, um, they are decentralized autonomous organizations, but not sure if they can ever be fully 
decentralized. <laughs> so I just want to get like a sense of uh, what do you see the difference between when you started your research and now in, in terms of uh, the, the level playing field? Yeah, that's a fantastic thing to reflect on. I think every bit counts. Again, like I'm not trying to be critical in some of the earlier experiments are some of the boldest. Uh, so I've done many months and interviews and observation and participation in Gitcoin DAO, which was one of the first and and kind of biggest. And, and those writings, some of them are, are available on my blog and 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 website links or whatever. Um, and it really is people trying to explore what is governance? Like what is what is democracy? You know, like these really philosophical questions. Um, like take me back to Plato. Uh, but like what does it mean to have fairer systems and how can we build them? And, and, and a lot of um, spirit and kind of emphasis on, on trying to do that. But then, like I say, these are long-standing and complex questions of human civilization. You know, so not you can't just solve it. It's not it's not a one and done. Uh, and I guess that comes back to um, some of the principles around infrastructure and the ideas of maintenance. And you know, even if you found this thing and decentralized, doesn't mean you can just exit. Or you know, some beautiful reflections that are that are quotes in some of those pieces around like, yeah, like it's still political. And I'm like. Yeah, it's still political. Like it's still people. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, but there, there is ide- like a lot of idealism, you know, around the fact that, you know, it'll be this like democratic system through the enabled through the software code. And then, you know, it'll just function wonderfully. But of course, there's, you know, organizations and management and, you know, training and participation and, um, all of these things. Uh, so I think some of the ways that those have involved, I mean, then there's been multiple iterations that have built on that. So Gitcoin DAO was a fork, I think, of Compound uh, with a few changes, perhaps correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and then ENS iterated on that for their, you know, exit to DAO and then, um, you know, others. So I think uh, each layer but, you know, stands on, stands on the shoulder of giants, I guess, uh, for each iteration of these. But some of the more recent um, sort of uh, short-term DAO infrastructures have been really interesting. So there's, like, very um, temporary action-oriented uh, cases. Uh, and I have a piece coming out in the Internet Review Glossary of Decentralized Technologies or something, which I co-wrote with Professor Ellie Rennie around um, ad hoc. And we're just defining the term ad hoc, but we speak to these examples of, you know, ad hoc networks enable ad hoc communities. And so the social implications of this are like these spin-up DAOs, Assange DAO, you know, Ukraine DAO for a specific purpose. It's just a temporary network, but it's people um, able to mobilise resources through that uh, through that infrastructure, which is quite interesting. So that's, I guess, one um, dynamic of evolution. And then I think uh, the other really interesting side is some of the uh, 
thoughts, I guess, or some of the theoretical approaches to governance that are developing. So I mentioned governance automation, uh, and that kind of comes out of some of the blogs by the Gauntlet community. Um, governance minimization is a fascinating post by Paradigm, the VC organization, uh, with regards to liquid staking and Lido DAO, which is on governance minimization. Um, and then again, stay tuned, another piece coming very soon, um, which I co-wrote with the wonderful team that I get to do some work with at Block Science. Um, kind of tries to, to uh, balance that out and, and develop it further to talk about governance sizing versus governance minimization. So what does it mean rather than trying to rid of all human involvement, automate as much as possible and just have, you know, the system, the code automatically doing things? Like what does it mean for a system to be adaptable? You need levers you can pull, especially in times of crisis. So this comes back to your question about like which DAOs will survive um, or what, like what do we watch out for going wrong? You know, if resilience is that adaptability, then uh, people need to be able to intervene to some extent, you know, according to the rules of that system. And obviously you don't want that to be um, exploited or you don't want collusion and, and all those things. Um, but what is um, the minimal kind of uh, administrative or like bureaucratic overhead you need while still maintaining the ability to control the entire system towards the goal, whether that be providing funding, you know, or, um, you know, facilitating people's social interests or, or whatever the objective of the DAO is. So I think to the comment that you mentioned of your previous guest about like these will never be fully decentralized. I don't know if full decentralization is actually the goal, like perhaps adaptability or resilience is a better goal to set uh, because in this work we did around um, governance sizing that I did alongside with Fox Science uh, and doing a deep dive into lighter liquid staking, we talked a lot about um, uh, form follows function and credit to my colleague Barada for that statement. And that was really about like Lido doesn't need to be fully decentralized where everyone is together and making shared decisions on everything. Like it needs to be functional. Like they are securing billions of dollars on multiple, you know, uh, public blockchains and so you want that operation to be slick you want it to be super efficient you want it to be really responsive to you know sudden drops in liquidity in the market and, and all of these other you know very technical um, dynamics and so you need uh, it to be you know operationally functional as an organization in that sense but you also want it to be accountable so you want, you know, the stakeholders involved in that, whether that's holders of the token or node operators or owners or employees or whatever, um, to still have a say, especially in major system changes. But, uh, you know, back to that governance sizing, what does it look like uh, to enable adaptability and how do you do that 
kind of layers down in an organisation. And I think we're starting to see that in the evolution of DAOs as we go from like a DAO is a DAO, everyone sees everything, everyone votes on everything. Well, actually, like that's a pain in the neck and people don't have the time and attention or or care for that as long as the thing is working and doing what it needs to do um, until otherwise. So then you go, okay, what does subsidiarity look like? What does it look like to have, you know, organisational functions at multiple scales within that? larger DAO and then how do you have a DAO of DAO and then sub DAOs and then organizational functions in that and then what does it mean for those DAO of DAOs to relate to other DAOs and the DAO to DAO relations Uh, and I think uh, very very early in thinking on that very early in applying um, existing theoretical innovations so subsidiarity refers to kind of like Ostrom's ideas, um, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, that is an, an economist who, who won ideas for how you govern common pool resources. Uh, but, yeah, early thinking in, in how you apply this to DAOs as DAOs mature. So for a DAO to scale, you need all these multiple levels within the DAO and then kind of systems of, of how they interact as an ecology and things. So uh, much more to be done, I guess, in terms of theory and practice. Yeah, yeah, and it's very interesting actually, and that's a good um, sub-headline as well. Like they need to be functional and they need to get the work done and, you know, it's just a way to avoid these enormous hierarchies we have in the present uh, work situations. And uh, yeah, that's that's really, thank you for explaining it so well. So, I mean, it's a complex topic and... Uh, really interested to understand how do you really go about your research, you know, to write such papers and um, what is all the work that goes behind it? So what are your research methods? And um, you said you are active in communities. So so would love to know about the process a bit. Yeah. So I'm in this wonderful field of social science called ethnography. And I admit it's not something I knew a lot about until I approached someone whose work I really liked in the space and this was their method. So for them to be my supervisor and that's um, Professor Ellie Rennie that I mentioned uh, meant to kind of work in their methods, I guess. And so I've learned so much, but really what it's about is the study of culture and communities kind of draws on anthropology. So, you know, taking the boat to a foreign place and kind of being like, What is happening here? How do people relate? What are the rituals? Uh, So what that looks like in in decentralised technology communities is a lot of time, a very time-consuming method, uh, and a combination of observation. So what are people doing practice and interviews? So what do people kind of say or feel or what are they motivated by and all these things? So, yeah, I feel very... uh, fortunate I'm also at RMIT University which um, one of the research schools I'm connected to is called the Digital Ethnography Research Centre so they're pioneers in some of these methods Uh, and then the other side of of doing ethnography is around access so again I'm so grateful to the communities that I get to research with because if people didn't uh, share their time with me to take interviews Um, or didn't allow me to join their discords or telegrams or DAOs or whatever, 
um, then I wouldn't be able to do this. So, um, yeah, so it is quite special. It is um, hilarious at times. Um, some of the quotes that you hear people say or the realisations while in a conversation or, um, you know, some of the the nuances or idiosyncrasies of just the decentralised technology space in terms of I have colleagues that are um, completely anonymous. I've never seen them. I work with them on a weekly basis. They're just a pseudonym to me. Um, recently, I was exchanging uh, memos via uh, Zcash with someone. So this is like this anonymous uh like micro payments to each other with a memo attached and I was asking them some research questions um, and they were like otherwise known as um, zero knowledge shielded love notes or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, just these crazy experiences. Um, uh, but, yeah, that as a method, it's, it's qualitative. So it's really about um, people often ask kind of like, oh, how do you write so much? Um, but really it's part of the research process in terms of like structuring research questions and then spending the time and just wading through, you know, discords and Twitter streams and interviews and transcripts and then, you know, surfacing kind of key themes out of that. But again, I've, I'm, you know, still doing my PhD. I'm really grateful for the, um, you know, the mentorship of my peers and colleagues and, um, and I think it's a fascinating way to look at the social dynamics. It's like what is unseen in the theory or what is unseen in the code, and it's a complement to those. So actually some of the things I'm doing uh, with the team at Block Science, I mentioned when I kind of engage in, in industry projects, is trying to bridge the social, the technical, and the economic dynamics of these systems for more holistic, you know, engagement, design, analysis. Um, and because we're looking at, you know, Web3 or decentralised infrastructures from a systems perspective, it's really about, you know, if the ethnography component is really about the feedback loops. So you can do all this engineering and all this design, you know, let her run, and then what actually happens in practice? You need to be on the ground, talk to people, see, like listen to what they say, observe what happens, um, and then kind of iterate from there. So it's a really important uh, contribution to the space. It's definitely not independent or a be-all and end-all. Um, but, yeah, I found it a very constructive way to engage and also, yeah, a very enjoyable one in terms of the experiential nature of these communities. Yeah, yeah. And and there are so many out there. And uh, well, hats off to you that you are a part of uh, different communities and so many discords. Um, I'm always spoiled for choices, you know, because I'm interested in so many projects. And then I'm like, okay, I can't be super active in these all these uh, discord channels. But um, yes, and especially it's so new, you know, so you really don't have anything written anywhere to refer. So the only way to actually do research is be a part of these communities mm, and okay so that brings me to my next question is that what's cooking right now you said stay tuned something is coming and uh, you know what are the future topics that you're looking to research and what 
makes you curious? What specific uh, topics make you curious these days? Oh, so much. It is just an ever unfolding journey. I think, I mean, coming back to the purpose of this paper, um, you know, and this podcast really, like I, I, I see 2022 as the year of data and data governance and data utilization taking off in the Web3 space. I'm really excited for um, Data Union DAO and, and some other kind of uh, stealth stealth mode projects um, that I know are brewing in that sense. Um, I'm actively looking on uh, into projects where these technologies are in practice by end user communities outside of developer spaces. Uh, so I've been fortunate enough to be a PhD fellow with Protocol Labs, which has meant you know numerous interviews with people that are you know, they need to, they want decentralized, you know, content addressing and data storage solutions for various purposes, real world purposes, you know, um, preservation of indigenous languages or, um, you know, censorship resistance of, you know, community blogs or whatever. And so I think that's a really important area to continue to pursue in terms of like, what happens when people use these in practice? Are they resilient? Do they serve people's contexts and needs? What are the blockers? Uh, and some of the initial findings of that research are really, you know, to my own surprise, kind of came back to the governance dynamics and how you need these social uh, codes of uh, behaviour and engagement to guide the technical because the technical can be as encrypted and as decentralized and as secure as you want but unless we know how to participate with it as a group of people it's not uh so that's another one and then I have done um some forays into futures as well so um some history stuff is coming and um working on uh major revisions on that but hopefully that will get published and then also Futures. So, kind of looking at like what are the possible futures of human machine systems? If we're going to engage in decentralized infrastructures and we want to coordinate through these, and you know, a lot of the signals from very influential people in the space from you know, early cypherpunks like Mark Miller, who's now doing the Agoric project, uh, to Vitalik, and a lot of the um, advocacy really he has done around um, longevity and transhumanist ideas and DAOs and, and projects that have popped up in that space um, to others like um, Balaji and his kind of ideas around the network state and kind of crypto cities and all this stuff. Um, I try to explore kind of constructive futures and I draw on cybernetic principles there and actually a lot of anthropologists were involved in in the shaping of the field of cybernetics um to kind of talk about um these ideas of you know symbiosis where like people and machines kind of like live in in co-constructive um relationships or another word for it is um autopoiesis so these systems that are kind of self-referencing um and and whole and there's um yeah, really lovely literature on, on what does wholeness mean in these kinds of contexts and things which I have referenced um, 
there's a piece around, yeah, imagining human machine futures that I'd refer people to for more on that. Oh, wow, that's a big list. <laughs> it's a big list. Yeah, it yeah. definitely keeps me so engaged. I um, I have friends that say to me that I'm the only person I've ever met who's enjoying their PhD process, but I sure am. Okay, yeah, yeah, it does seem, and you know, you're adding also so much value into the ecosystem. So we need more researchers like you. Uh, thank you very much. So I, I think we are pretty much covered, but um, is there anything that you want to leave us with a like concluding note? Usually we always ask guests to leave with like one thing they would want listeners to think about if they had to leave. If you have to leave us with, with one comment, what would it be? Oh, I didn't prepare for this, uh, <laughs> but perhaps with some of the things I've spoken about in terms of, uh, you know, the engineer's responsibility and ethnographic methods, uh, I have done some writing on uh, reflexivity, which is a concept out of ethnography, which is about reflecting on your own position like what's my background what's my cultural heritage what are my values what are my assumptions and how does this impact my work so as an ethnographer I'm going to other communities and I've obviously got all these preconceived ideas and I want to forefront those and kind of be honest with myself about those and how they influence you know what I see what I perceive and, and what I find out of out of those experiences so I think that's a really important practice for people as they're thinking about well, what should the future, future of data governance look like well, obviously it's decentralized and obviously we can monetize it and obviously we want to yield farm off those genomic sequences or whatever uh, but yeah I think that's that's one you know tool in the toolkit uh, that again I think is very important and um you know, it's, it's something really interesting that comes out of uh, the interview process often when you kind of give people the chance to answer, you know, open questions and, and reflect on uh, some of like why they do what they do or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, maybe that's uh, one more piece towards more constructive, um, decentralised digital futures. Hmm. Thank you. Yes, so it, it's been so great talking to you, Kelsey, and uh, look forward to more of your papers and um, we'll keep reading. <laughs> and uh, thank you for your time. Such a pleasure. Thank you for the wonderful questions and thanks to everyone that listened. Thank you. And also thank you to the entire team that works towards this podcast, Ocean Protocol Foundation. And if you liked what you heard please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm.